Perfect. Just no place for me. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. I'm Ed Kane. I'm a member of the board of directors of the Enoch Pratt Free Library. And on behalf of the boards of directors and trustees and our esteemed executive director, Carla Hayden, um, who couldn't be with us tonight, welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library and to the library's Writers Live series. Since its inception 10 years ago, the series has attracted an impressive array of award-winning and best-selling authors. Among them, Maryland's own Laura Lippman and NPR's Garrison Keillor. Indeed, the Pratt has become a major stop on the uh, book tour circuit. Tonight, the Writers Live series is pleased to present C. Fraser Smith discussing his recent work, Here Lies Jim Crow. Writers Live journey continues next week, uh, when on Wednesday, June 18th, we'll have Arthur, author and actor Hill Harper, who many of you may know from his work on CSI New York or Lackawanna Blues, and he'll be joining us to discuss his book, Letter to a Young Letters to a Young Sister. Um, we are honored to be hosting this event tonight with the Johns Hopkins University Press. Founded in 1878, the Hopkins Press has the distinction of being the America's oldest university press. In a typical year, it publishes 200 new books, new issues of 70 scholarly journals. It's acclaimed journals, online journals collection, Project Muse. Uh, the press has become a leading electronic publisher of humanities and social science scholarship. And of course, it's the publisher of Here Lies Jim Crow. So I want to give a special welcome uh, to the press's director, Kathleen Keene, who was here, I saw her earlier, and to Bob Bruger, who's uh, Fraser's editor for Here Lies Jim Crow, and to the many staff and friends of the press, and uh, another special welcome to the members of the Baltimore chapter of the Johns Hopkins Alumni Association. <coughs> I'd also like to t take this opportunity to thank the staff and volunteers of the Enoch Pratt Free Library who make events like this possible. Um, I have one last housekeeping duty, uh, and that is there are surveys on your chairs, um, and if you would not mind completing them and then dropping them at the information desk when we're done, we would greatly appreciate that. Um, and now to the main reason why we are here. Um, to int introduce to you Fraser Smith, I'm pleased to call upon Mr. Ralph Moore, Jr. Ralph, I suspect, is known to many of you. His reputation as a community activist is an advocate forged through his work with organizations such as the St. Ambrose Housing Aid Center, the um, Human Services Commission, and as the Community Center at St. Francis Academy, where he is now the director, precedes him here and in many other quarters of the community. Ralph's insights from fighting good fights, his thoughtfulness on matters of race make him a fitting choice to introduce tonight's guest, for whom he even served as something of a resource. Uh, see, for example, pages 181 and 182. Um, by way of, by way of background, <laughs> sorry, I missed it. By way of uh, background, Ralph Moore hails from Baltimore, Sandtown, Winchester neighborhood. Uh, he now holds a degree in social and Behavioral Sciences from Johns Hopkins University, but he began his education with the Oblate Sisters of Providence at the St. Pius V Catholic Elementary School in West Baltimore, and he was later among the first African-American students to attend Loyola High School. I don't know if any of you recall, but on April 4th edition of The Sun, there was an article that featured or detailed the impact of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. on Ralph and three of his pioneering classmates at Loyola. Of particular note and resonance for me was the prodigious afro that Ralph was sporting in the accompanying photo. 
And so having dispatched all of my duties tonight, I will present to you with great pleasure Ralph Moore, who will present to you Fraser Smith. Thank you. Good evening. Good evening. I wear that afro inside now. <clears throat> Hairiness is a state of mind, or so I've convinced myself. This has been a fascinating week of focus on civil rights for my wife and me. Last Saturday, we had the pleasure of traveling to New York to see the fine actor, Lawrence Fishburne, perform in a one-man show, Thurgood, at the Booth Theater. I highly recommend to you the play about Baltimore's own Thurgood Marshall. There are multiple references to our town and its place in the civil rights movement in that play. And today, I have been given the honor and pleasure of introducing our guest speaker who brings with him his new book on Maryland civil rights history, Here Lies Jim Crow. Now, to paraphrase Mark Twain, rumors of the death of racial segregation itself may have been greatly exaggerated on occasion. But that is not why, what my friend Fraser Smith is announcing here with this book. In fact, I'm sure he would agree that you need look no further than the nation's public schools, for example, to see segregation is alive and well. But Jim Crow himself is dead. That is, the system of legal segregation, America's apartheid, has passed on. C. Fraser Smith was kind enough to chronicle Jim, Jim Crow's demise after sifting through 300 oral histories of residents of our state wisely captured by the Maryland Historical Society. Smith takes these many stories and weaves them into one, the birth and death of Jim Crow brought to you by our own state of Maryland. He will tell some of that story tonight. You might want to get his book to learn more of this fascinating story. C. Fraser Smith, our master storyteller, was born on the first day of African American History Month in what was then Kodak country, Rochester, New York. His father was a law book salesman. His mother was born in Canada. He is a graduate of the University of North Carolina with a BA in English. He served three years in the military, the Air Force, I believe. Fraser is the recipient of many awards in journalism, including from the United Press International and the Associated Press. He has been an editorial writer and columnist with the Baltimore Sun since 1999. One of my personal favorites of his Sun reporting was in 1980, was his 1980 series on the shadow government in Baltimore City, a little-known bank created for development and run by Mayor William Donald Schaefer to finance the Renaissance in Baltimore. The series was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. With the presentation of the book tonight, this brings the total number of books he's authored to three. In no, it is no wonder that such a basketball devotee 
would pick the University of Maryland's basketball star, the late Len Bias, as the subject of his first book, Lenny, Lefty, and the Chancellor. Perhaps an atonement for his shadow government expose series, his second book is a fascinating biography of Mayor, Governor, State Controller, Schaefer. That book was fun to read. I learned a lot from it. Although I must confess publicly, I was a little disappointed not to get a mention in it for the night I debated Mr. Schaefer on National TV Live in 1981 about the effectiveness of the city's renaissance for the poor. Once again, in atonement perhaps, he includes me in the latest book. I feel better. Tonight's presentation is brought to you by the Enid Pratt Free Library, one of the best library systems in the country, and the Johns Hopkins University Press, the publisher of Fraser's books on Schaefer and Jim Crow in Maryland, and the oldest university press in America, and one of the best. There is a famous Hollywood quote, which I've often attributed to comedian Red Skelton, about the very well-attended 1958 funeral of Harry Cohn, whom many considered a tyrant of a president of the Columbia Pictures studio. Standing outside the standing room only service, Skelton is supposed to have quipped, give the people what they want to see and they'll come out for it every time. Well, this is certainly not a funeral, but Fraser Smith is here tonight to tell us some stories of who contributed what to Jim Crow's death. He's come to bury Jim Crow, not to praise him, I'm sure. Thanks for coming out. Please welcome Sun columnist, National Public Radio WYPR's political analyst, and one of Baltimore's best storytellers, C. Fraser Smith. Hey. Thank you so much, Ralph, and thank all of you for being here. I went to a book signing earlier this week at uh, Barnes & Noble in uh, White Marsh for a man named Louis Black. I had no idea who he was. Uh, I, I was told that he was a TV star and a comedian, and I learned while I was there that he wrote plays and walked in the, into the store, and the place was filled with people. I mean, there must have been 200 people there. People had gotten there two hours early to wait to get their book signed. And I thought, why can't I figure out a, t a topic that would uh, turn out lots of people? But here you are. And I thank you so much for being here. It's, I must tell you, it's, very, it's, it's, it's a bit awesome to be here in this building. And... Uh, to see all of you here, and I'm, 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 so, I'm so happy to be here. Um, I need to begin, I want to begin by thanking the Meyerhoff family, the Meyerhoff Family Foundation for a grant, which allowed me to do some of the research at the beginning of this project. The uh, Joseph Meyerhoff family has done a lot for the enjoyment and cultural enrichment of our city, as we all know, and it's not just the magnificent uh, symphony hall that, that uh, they left us. I'm also very pleased to tell you that a gift from Charles and Peggy Obrecht in honor of their friend, the Reverend Marion Bascom, who's also in my book, will enable the press to give a number of copies of Here, Li Here Lies Jim Crow to the Pratt System and to several other 
school and community libraries in Baltimore. On behalf of the press and all of us involved with the book, I thank Peggy and Charlie for their very generous gesture. They weren't able to be here tonight because it's Peggy's birthday and they're traveling to celebrate. Let me go back to Ralph for a moment. In the radio business, we would say, Ralph, you stepped all over my lines. Uh, the first I really knew of, of Ralph at, when I came to Baltimore was seeing him in this moment when he was debating the uh, Renaissance man of the city, William Donald Schaefer, on national television. And Ralph is, a, uh, is a definitely a very brave person. I mean, he stood up in the middle of the Schaefer juggernaut and said, we really have two Baltimores here. This is wonderful. This is beautiful. This is grand. This is a great comeback for our city. We're proud of it. But let's don't forget the rest of the city that does not enjoy a, re a renaissance. And uh, Ralph has, has stayed with his stayed with his stayed to the, with his last he has continued to do the things he was doing then and to devote himself to the city for all these many years um, the one of the most recent uh, memories I have of Ralph was when he uh, it welcomed people to the uh, to the Baltimore Mu Mu Museum of Arts public meeting room when there was a, a session on uh, uh, what, had, what was happening at uh, WYPR. I'm not going to go down that road, of course, but, <laughs> but I want to say that uh, when Ralph stood up, he, before he began his remarks, he said, Yes, we can! <laughs> Which brings me to the subject at hand. If we can, and I think we can, it's because of Ralph, and all the others that I hope you will read about in Here Lies Jim Crow. Barack Obama is standing on Ralph, Ralph's shoulders. He's standing on the shoulders of many people who sacrificed so much of their lives, who risked their lives to do the things that changed our country. And um, the sad thing about it, in a way, and the reason that I wrote the book is that not everybody knows the story. Uh, even people who were alive in those days don't know the story. And of course, there have been several generations of Americans that, that were born since that story played out. And many of those people need to hear the price that was paid for the change that has come to our country. Um, Fortunately for me, since I had to do this while I was doing my day job, it was an extremely uh, integrating, uh, an, an extremely, uh, uh, a story that I really cared about. The people, I really cared about the people a lot. And uh, every time I went back to it, I, I was inspired again to continue. Um, the fact that nobody knows the story, I learned recently after I wrote a column for The Sun that sort of was based around something that I heard people say over and over as I was doing interviews. I would say to them, 
What was it like living in, in that era? How, how did you put up with that? And in, and in a way, it's an unfair question because it suggests, and it's, I wouldn't have been the first person to even inadvertently suggest it, that, well, maybe people should have resisted a little more strongly a little earlier. And I would pursue it a little bit, and people would say, well, you know, we didn't like it, of course, we hated it. But it's just the way it was. You know, you made your peace, you protested in whatever way you could, and you tried to, tried to live your life, you made the progress you could make, and uh, you, tried to, you tried to deal with the, uh, the discrimination that bore in on you uh, at almost every point in your life. So that, that piece was in the paper, and I got this letter from a woman uh, named Elaine, and she said she might come tonight, but I, if she's here, I have not met her. She said, I wanted to comment on your column the last Sunday when you stated how black mothers tried to shield their children from the humiliation of Jim Crow. I grew up here in Baltimore, and during the mid-40s, we would board the old 26th streetcar in Turner Station, head for our Saturday shopping on Lexington Street. Several times I attempted to sit in one of the front seats, but was led to the rear of the streetcar. When the white people of Dundalk came on board, the front seats were available for them. Whether this was a law or not, I never found out. However, most of the blacks had deep southern roots, and this is what they automatically did. Once we reached Lexington Street and had shopped at Gutman's and Brager's and Hecht's, we would look at the window displays at Hutzler's and Hoschel's and other department stores like Stewart's. I always pleaded to go inside one of them because... The windows were so appealing. Then inside must be really something to see, she thought. My mother's reply was always the same, maybe the next time. By the time we had shopped at Shriver's Market, we were tired and hungry and went to McCrory's, or one of the five and tens to get a hot dog. I always wanted to sit down at the counter that was all shiny with chrome, or sit in one of the booths with red plush seats. Instead, we had to stand near a little wooden counter to eat our hot dog, which was the only item on the menu. I could see waitresses serving milkshakes, burgers, fries, ice cream sundaes with whipped cream and cherries, and kept asking to go over there to eat. My mother's reply was always the same, maybe the next time. It wasn't until 1948, when I was eight years old, and had grown taller and learned to read that I saw the sign above the wooden counter that stated colored lunch counter. By then, I had begun to notice that there was a difference between people. My mother never told me anything I had to discover for myself about Jim Crow. I was, I was, I remembered the restrooms labeled white women and colored women. I was an only child with a very vivid imagination. In my mind, the white women's bathroom must have marble floors and gold commodes and silver knobs on the sinks. Once the signs came down and we could use these bathrooms, I was surprised to see that they had regular toilets and sinks just like the ones we had. I remember Jim Crow well because I experienced it. My children could not believe that such things happened. 
And so, again, that's part of why I wanted to do this book, because I think people need to know where we've been so we can figure out where we're going. Um, while I was working on the book, I talked to a friend in Western Maryland and showed her some parts of the book, and she said that she told a friend of hers that she knew somebody that was working on a book on Jim Crow, and this man said, oh, yeah, I know him. He's the judge over in Thurmont. So, you know, there's a lot of, of instructing that still needs to go on in, in, our, in our world, and I, I hope that I, I will have made a, a contribution here. Um, while I was working on this, of course, I thought about what the title ought to be for the book. And I thought of things like um, Civil Rights Odyssey or Quest for Justice. Um, and then I also thought just the way it was might work pretty well. And um, I, I did an interview with a man who was almost 100 years old, who was then a professor at uh, Morgan named Richard McKinney, a wonderful man, one of, one of maybe a dozen 90-year-old witnesses to all this that I interviewed while I was doing this. And he told me about growing up in Georgia and uh, going on a trip with the, uh, with the Morehouse College Choir and how the director of the choir said, now, I know you're going to see some things you've never seen before. It's going to be, and you're going to see some things you have seen before. And you're all young people, and you're all energetic, and you hate the way things are. But let me just ask you not to try to solve the civil rights program on one trip. In other words, we're going to be traveling around. You need to be careful. You don't know exactly where you're going to be. You don't know what might happen uh, if you said something. So try to be careful about, about how you react. Um, McKinney was careful, and he, and he paid attention but when opportunity was presented to him, he took advantage of it. He went to a, a, a camp in Pennsylvania, and uh, one, of the, one of the people at the camp was from Yale University, and he applied, and he got a scholarship to the Yale Divinity School. And um, he ended up at Storer College in West Virginia, which is one of the places that the newly formed NAACP had met, and close to uh, Harper's Ferry, where John Brown did what we probably all of us know he did. And then McKinney came, came to uh, Baltimore. And he taught philosophy at Morgan and uh, lived through the civil rights era and uh, saw himself accused by some militants of being uh, m much more establishment than they had hoped he would be. But he continued to think about his life and uh, to make his contribution there to higher education. And when I interviewed him, it was right at the beginning of the construction of the Reginald Lewis Museum of African American History in Baltimore. And McKinney
while I was working on this book, um, someone uh, someone asked me if, while I was doing the research, it ever made me cry, and I said, "Yeah," and it still occasionally does. But McKinney, at the age of 98, would drive his car down to the worksite and park and watch people build this building. And so, not in a single day, but in his day, when he was still here, he saw, he saw this building go up. So I think that was a great thing, and I, I, was, I was happy for him. Uh, I chose, ultimately, here, here Lies Jim Crow because I saw it on a poster that somebody carried in a march. Since then, I've seen a picture of black men carrying a casket with the same sign on the casket, Here Lies Jim Crow. At that point, it was a hope, but it was, it was what the campaign was about. It was, and to some extent, I think, Marilyn dug the grave, and waited for the rest of the country to deliver the body. I say that in part because of things that happened on Pennsylvania Avenue in the early 1930s when there was a campaign called Shop Where You Can Work. Pennsylvania Avenue had almost all white shop owners, but they didn't have many black employees. So people, in a break from the more cautious way that people lived, decided that they were going to start picketing down there, and they did, and they won. And even though the courts reversed uh, or, or ruled against them, ruled their picketing was illegal, the shop owners understood the economic message because it had damaged their, them at the bottom line. They then started hiring black employees. So I started to work on this book. Uh, I, I might have mentioned earlier because when I was researching my book on William Donald Schaefer, I read a great oral history of, of Little Willie Adams. Adams was a numbers guy, uh, and then a great and very successful developer. And of course, I guess if you're a developer, you have to play golf. So he started playing golf, and one of his golf partners was Joe Lewis. And I remember one of the first books I read in my life was, uh, was a biography of Joe Lewis. And I, I was just really struck by that. You know, here's Adams, and Joe Lewis is one of his great friends. I don't know. I talked to Joe Lewis's son, and, and I, I'm still not real clear I mean, on how they met. Lewis was stationed at Fort Camp Meade, Fort Meade. And so they, they, met, they met there because there was a fundraiser for Chick Webb, who I know less about, really, than I know about Louis Black, basically. But he was a jazz musician. And so that's, where they, that's basically where they met. And so they played, started playing golf together. And Louis would say to, to Adams every now and then, why don't you do something about where we have to play? They, they had to play it... Um, a course that has only uh, had only nine holes. Well, here you had a, an ideal, separate but equal case to make, right? How, how how equal could it be if your golf course only had nine holes? 
This is one of the — actually one of the points that, that was made in the next really important uh, case uh, against Jim Crow in Maryland, and it was the — a case to integrate the Univ University of Maryland Law School. This was Donald Gaines Murray, who was the black plaintiff in the case, V. Ronald Pearson, I think, was the, was the name of the president of the University of Maryland. Uh, and the case was brought by Charles Hamilton Houston, the famous uh, dean of the Howard Law School, and Thurgood Marshall, who had been Houston's pupil at Howard. Uh, Marshall, we think, never did apply to the University of Maryland Law School because blacks weren't admitted, so he didn't waste his time. But he was involved in the case before Judge Eugene O'Dunn, who was a very proper establishment uh, judge with the very starchy collars and pince-nez and looked like the last person you would expect to be a, sort of a revolutionary. But the odd thing was that he thought the law applied to everyone. And his reading of uh, Plessy v. Ferguson and uh, uh, the other cases that, that, ha that were coming along after that, some of whom were, were argued by Ashby Hawkins and other black lawyers from Baltimore, meant that the, that the law school should be integrated. And they won. Eugene O'Dunn decided that it should happen. But, and it was, and it was very important. I mean, it was another almost 20 <clears throat> years b before Brown v. Board of Education, the uh, as I'm sure everyone here knows, was the uh, important uh, case that struck down Plessy and, and separate but equal. So um, we had all of these things going on, and um, in, in, an, in, in our attack against uh, Jim Crow in, in Maryland and, and in the nation, ultimately, and it occurred to me when I started doing this research that we had a <clears throat> we had a big picture uh, demonstration of the importance of Maryland and all of this because we had two of our three Supreme Court justices were Roger Brooke Tawney, author of the Dred Scott decision, and Marshall, who uh, wasn't he was the I would say he was the architect of Brown v. Board. There was there were four or five cases involved in that decision, but. He was the guy who had done so much of the work and pulled together so much of the expert testimony. So we had the bookends of my book were Roger B. Tawney and Thurgood Marshall. So with, that, with all of that in mind, I started uh, taking a look at, at, at Jim Crow. And some people have asked me what the origin of that term, that word is. And it appears to have come from from minstrel shows, minstrel shows, uh, which I think could safely be said were sort of a vehicle for derisive jibes at black people evolving into a panoply of discriminating law and code and social control. I, I haven't mentioned uh, at this point uh, Frederick Douglass very much, but um, he learned to read on the streets of uh, Fells Point. And among his teachers were young white boys, which made him 
say later on that he was pretty sure that racism was taught and not something we were born with. And uh, the point has been made in many cases, including in many, in many, other, uh, many other vehicles for the same point, including South Pacific, which has the famous line about you have to be carefully taught. So I wanted to deal with Douglas not as a curiosity or as a black spokesman, but as a statesman of our country. When, um, when Lily Mae Jackson, who was the grand dame of civil rights in Baltimore, died, one of the Sun editorialists said that something like she was a credit to her race, that she had done so much to help her race overcome so much of what was, it was pitted against. And um, a letter was written by a man named Frolicker, who was uh, Hans Frolicker. His wife was a famous social activist in the city, and he was head of the Park School, one of the founders of the Park School, I think. And he wrote a letter saying, you're missing the point. It's not what she did entirely, what she did for her people. It's what she did for our country. She was pointing out to all of us the injustice that we were all living with, uh, the, the just the way it was aspect of the way life was for everybody in our society. One of the things that I thought might be true while I was doing this work was that because of just the way it was and because of the way we learn what we learn and the, we get the attitudes we have, we don't, we don't rebel, we don't react against things that we know are wrong and unjust. It's a, it's a point that might even apply to Roger Brooke Tawney. I mean, he grew up on a plantation. He'd never seen anything in his life uh, until he got to Baltimore that suggested to him that maybe there was another way that this ought to be done in our society. Uh, actually, in Baltimore at the time, when we had more free, free blacks than any, almost any other city in the country, you really couldn't tell who was free and who was black on the streets of Baltimore because if you were a master, you could hire out, you would allow slaves that, and, and many people had slaves in the city, maybe only one or two small job shop people had slaves. It wasn't just in the country, it was, it was in the city as well. But in the commerce of Baltimore, you really couldn't tell who was a slave and who was not. It's one of the reasons that ultimately Douglas was able, able to escape. He saved a little money and he escaped. But my point about when you grow up in, a, in an atmosphere, you tend to adopt it and you don't question it as much as perhaps you should. And lots of the people that were important in the civil rights movement in Maryland were were, in effect, outsiders. Even Mrs. Jackson, Lily Mae Carroll Jackson, had traveled all over the country before she came back to Baltimore and realized what obstacles her children were going to face trying to get an education in the city. Um, Eugene O'Dunn was from, the, from Utah or Wyoming or somewhere. Um, Gloria Richardson whose spectacular picture is on the front of the book, pushing away the guardsman's bayonet 
I mean, this was a time, this was before the expression, get out of my face. But that's what she was doing. She was a stoic leader. She knew what she wanted to do, and she didn't let anybody get in her way. Uh, Clarence Mitchell had gone to Lincoln University. Clarence Mitchell was the, Lyndon Johnson said he was the 101st senator. He had an advantage over, over people who were elected to six-year terms because he was down there for 30 or 40 years. He knew the mores of the Senate. He understood how to operate down there. I wonder, you know, but he, like, like his wife Juanita, he, who went to school in Philadelphia, uh, he came back to Baltimore and he had a whole new view of things. Part of the way he felt about it was that as a young reporter for the Afro-American, he covered the last lynching in Maryland in 1933 in Princess Anne. He drove down there in the Carl Murphy's limousine. Carl Murphy was the publisher of the Afro at the time. And after word of the lynching had gotten back to Baltimore, he sent Clarence and, the, and someone else down there to cover this. It, it's one of the things, one of the awesomely inspiring things that I learned uh, uh, in reading uh, and doing research about this. I mean, these two guys drove up through Cecil County and down on the eastern shore at a time when <clears throat> it wasn't necessarily safe to be black and driving in a car down that way. And about halfway down there, the smoke started pouring out from under the car, and they thought, oh, my God, what has happened? They discovered that they left the emergency brake on. But Mitchell kept going, walked around the streets of Princess Anne. At this point, I think the town was anxious to disavow what had happened, to act like everything was normal. They were saying, oh, this all, this all happened to people came over from Virginia, and they're the ones that did this. So, so they, let, they let Clarence walk around, and he saw the burned body. It wasn't enough to just hang him, to just hang him on, in, the, in, the, in, a, in the, the dooryard of one of the judges down there. That wasn't enough. They had to burn the body as well and then leave it out there. And Clarence said, you know, in his writing, his very eloquent writing. He said, you know, this is all about teaching us a lesson. This is all about why we ought not to be standing up for our rights, because this is the kind of thing that can happen. So, you know, among the other outsiders that were very important were Chester Wickwire, the chaplain at Hopkins, and the head of the uh, uh, YMCA in, in Baltimore, who dared to put on jazz programs, rock programs that blacks and whites both could come to. He had to sign agreements with, with his two employers saying, if there's a race riot, it's on you. It's your fault. Of course, nothing ever happened. And, you know, these are the kinds of incremental things that, that were going on. And... Um, and had to be dealt with. And, you know, Wickwire came here from, also from Yale, 
And, and he said to me, you know, Baltimore was ripe. It was an open door for the social gospel, for the kinds of things that lots of people, including Eleanor Roosevelt, knew needed to happen in our country. She had found Wickwire in a polio sanitarium in Connecticut, realized he wasn't getting any treatment, and sent him down to Warm Springs. That's right, isn't it? Warm Springs in Georgia for treatment. And when he got as cured as he could be, you know, he had a, he had a hundred different little jobs, and then he ended up coming to uh, to Baltimore. And his predecessor apparently had something of a drinking problem. So all the people that were interviewing him were saying, "Do you drink? <laughs> you, you don't drink, do you?" Wrong question. I mean, Chester was a was a burr under the saddle of the establishment of Baltimore for a long time. I mean, he was, he was an inside agitator. In those years, you know, if you were, if you were a, a proponent of civil rights, you were an outside agitator. Well, it was almost necessary to be an outside agitator to sort of overcome the kinds of very legitimate reasons that people uh, stayed out of the fray. So, to conclude, let me just say again that, uh, you know, voting rights were clearly a big part of what went on in all of this. Uh, you'll read, if you do read the book, you'll see some. There were three times, three times in Maryland that the, that the General Assembly and leaders of the Democratic Party tried to overcome the 15th Amendment and withdraw the franchise from black people. They failed each time. The votes were pretty close, but they failed each time. And you know, we have continued to evolve as a society. We're not entirely there yet, of course, but we're, we're closer than we've been. And I, I go back to what I said in the beginning, that Ralph Moore and the other people that I've talked about in this book have made the success so far of Barack Obama possible. Uh, Frederick Douglass said they gave us, this was, this was when he was advocating for black soldiers in the Union Army, which was resistant in some quarters, and he was saying they gave us the bullet. And they did it basically because Douglass went to Lincoln and said, you really need to get black soldiers because it will be good for them and, and good for the Union. And so Lincoln and his generals finally relented. So afterward, Douglas said, he, he was moved on at that point to, to the next thing, which had to do with uh, the vote. So he said, they, give us, they gave us the bullet to save themselves. They will give us the ballot to save themselves. Well, not in a single day, but it did happen. And it's one of the incremental things that happened along the way. And again, I say it's part of why uh, up until this point, someone like Barack Obama has lots of support. And uh, we'll see what happens. But without Maryland, uh, we probably would have made the same progress in our country, but in fact, with Maryland, we made it uh, in some 
glorious ways and some ways that we, that we uh, may hesitate to look back on, but they're part of our history. Um, the end of my book talks about the two statues. There was a letter in the paper the other day suggesting that we tear down the Tawny statue. I think that's just a really bad mistake, and I don't think we'll do that. But Pete Rawlings, the delegate from Baltimore, former head of the Appropriation Committee, following the advice of, of Ed Papenfuse and others, said, let's don't tear down that statue. That's our history. Let's, let's leave it there. We can point at it and describe to people what it means. But why don't we have a statue of Thurgood Marshall? And that's what we do have. And it's wonderful. It's, it's, uh, it's a really splendid piece of sculpture. It has some young people seated on the, the uh, slate walkway that goes around the statue. And so on, on one side of the building you have Tawny, and on the other side, Pete would say the people's side, you have Thurgood Marshall. And they're flanking the, the, the place where the laws of our country, for better or ill, are made. So it's a wonderful tableau, and it's right here. And Pete would say, no, but no state's got what we've got. Nobody has the kind of demonstration of our history that we have. So again, I will conclude with that. If any of you have questions, I'd be happy to try to answer them. Thank you. Um, thank you very much, Fisher. Um, uh, it was fascinating talk, and the uh, book is equally so. Um, I do have a, on behalf of the um, Johns Hopkins Alumni Association, a small token of appreciation. And uh, again, want to extend our appreciation from the Enoch Pratt Free Library as well. Um, there is time for a few questions, if anybody has them. Um, I don't know if we have a, time for a lot, but we do have time for a few. Frazier, what governor helped the civil rights movement the most in Maryland, in your experience? What governor? Well, I think, it would, I think you'd have to say it was McKeldin. And, you know, beginning... McKeldin was, was the first uh, public official that took a very clear stand on, for civil rights when he, before he was governor, when he was mayor of the city. I remember reading about Theodore McKeldin before I came to Maryland in, in, the, in the 70s reading about him back in the 1960s. Uh, after Brown v. Board of Education, and he was already governor at that point, he was campaigning on the shore, and somebody said, uh, Go uh, Governor, what are you going to do about, about that decision? And he said, I represent the law. That was it. I represent the law. We're going we're to abide. Now, of course, in, and, uh, you know, Baltimore had Walter Sondheim, who, who, along with his school board, decided that they were going to uh, integrate the schools overnight. The Supreme Court said we need to, uh, integration needed to be the law of the land, integrated education. So that's what they did. The rest of the state didn't do that. There, was, there were uh, dilatory systems put in place. To some, to some extent, 
supported by I'm, I'm getting away from your question, but you know, by by uh, their concern that race mixing would be volatile, and that if you have you put kids together in, in schools, there would be problems. So they came up with the expression "all deliberate speed," which most people kind of left the speed part out and uh, did a did a little embroidery on uh, on deliberate. So I think it was McKeldin. Uh, probably nobody, uh, nobody's close. I see Jack Lapidus back there. Maybe he has a thought. Anybody else? I know um, it's getting I have late. A quick, I just have a quick question. I'm from the, the reverb in the speaker. I'm from Atlanta and uh, have lived in... Um, we always feel like we're the heart and soul of the civil rights movement, and um, my family and a lot of our friends certainly were. But one of the things that's really impressed me about Maryland is the extraordinary history of um, uh, the activism here. And one of the things, and I go to the African American, the Maryland Museum of African American History, right. and it's just a hall of fame. You know, it's nothing on Georgia and all the, the southern states that we like to say we were, had a lot to do with that. Why do you think, and I'm, I can't wait to read your book, why do you think that so much of the amazing history in Maryland, it's unique in the United States, um, why do you think so much of it's overshadowed by um, events in other places? Television. I mean, the things that happened in Maryland that were precedent-setting started in, in the early 1930s. Um, there were... There were demonstrations here against lynching. A black soldier was killed on Pennsylvania Avenue. There was a march to Annapolis. Um, you know, the law school was integrated, as I said. But there was, not, there, there was no media attention paid to it. The Baltimore Sun didn't give much attention to it. Uh, papers uh, other than the Afro and other black papers didn't pay a lot of attention to uh, they did, but the Sun didn't. The Sun didn't cover really much of anything in, in the black community uh, except for crime. Uh, but, you know, when the, when the Montgomery boy, bus boycott came and uh, Rosa Parks did what she did, I mean, there was, um, there was media coverage. Uh, and by that time, some of the newspapers in the South, in, in Atlanta, the Constitution, uh, Ralph McGill, who was a great uh, leader down there, very courageous leader. Uh, th those things, you know, the, the lunch counters in Baltimore were integrated a few months before the Greensboro sit-ins occurred. So, you know, but the Greensboro sit-ins and, uh, and the things that happened in Montgomery got all the headlines. And most people probably would say if, they, if you ask them where the modern civil rights movement began, you know, it began in Greensboro and then in, and then, uh, in Montgomery. But in Maryland, we had, in 1904, there was a Howard University professor who was thrown off a truck, was, who was ordered to sit in the blacks-only car on a train. And he, uh, he sued, but he lost. It had something to do with interstate commerce. As long as the train was intra-Maryland, you could, you could segregate in this way. And so, you know, there were many things, but, you know, at the same time, we had all these heroes I've been talking Harry Tubman and Douglas. 
Well, I don't know. I don't know if she was a Marylander, but well, we do have her school or school named after her here. I was reading about her recently again, and because you know her famous line with "Ain't I a woman?" Because there was some talk about how how women needed to be taken care of by men. This would not be a politically appropriate thing to say anymore, but you know what I mean historically. And she said, you know, nobody's taking care of me. Ain't I a woman? Very eloquent. It's a wonderful thing to read. I won't read it now, but it's, it's a wonderful... And Mrs. Jackson said, God gave me a voice and no man can shut it. And she terrified people. Her, her grandson, Kiefer, who was the uh, councilman from Baltimore, said that people told him um, that judges would say, oh, my God, here comes Mrs. Jackson. Ask her what she wants so we can get her out of here. Yes, sir. Yeah, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Bayless. Uh, on behalf of uh, the Youth Project, a mentoring program, and Christopher Place Employment Academy, uh, we would like to thank you and uh, the Interpret Free Library. Uh, I just have a quick question. Um, Maryland is often referred to as a free state. Uh, I've seen signs uh, traveling on the eastern shore and even in the metropolitan area. Maryland is referred to as a free state. Can you explain that? It's a baffling, I, it know, baffles me. I'm not going to remember it as well as I should, but it was the invention of a, of a writer at the Sun, I believe. Gwyn Owens, I think, suggested that, and he, su he suggested it in part on the basis of his belief that Maryland was one of the first states, if not the first, to pass an open accommodations law. I, I, uh, I kind of took a pass on that distinction because the, uh, in the first instance, um, three counties, all of them Eastern Shore counties, decided by local option that they weren't going to be covered by this law. So we, you know, we did have the law, but uh, there's this local courtesy thing at, in the General Assembly that some counties can exempt themselves from things they don't want to participate in, and this was one of them. And as a result of that and, and various other things that existed here, we had these problems with the U.N. Uh, ambassadors traveling from New York to Washington and being unable to be served in, in highway places. So there are plenty of reasons to question the, uh, the irony of, or, or to remark on the irony of, of that designation. But I think that's roughly the history. Good yes, evening. Sir. My name is Earl Brown. I'm from Annapolis, Maryland, Anne Arundel County. On behalf of my mother and father, Philip and Rachel Brown, who were the original plaintiffs in the Walter S. Mills case in 1938 for equal pay for their counterparts, as my father always tells me to say. He wrote the book, A Century of Separate but Legal Education in Anne Arundel County. He's 99 years old, and he ordered me to come here tonight and fetch this book and bring it back to him tomorrow. 
My question to you, and you are very knowledgeable about this, and I've seen other works of yours, why did it take Anne Arundel County 12 years to desegregate when the order came down in 1954, and they didn't fully desegregate the infamous Bates High School until 1966? Can you just elaborate and just say something about what is... Well, what about Anne Arundel County? What seems to be the problem there? Thank you, sir. Well, it wasn't just Anne Arundel County. It was, uh, it was counties all over, the, all over the state. I think one of, the, one of the phrases that was used was freedom of choice. And, and around that was this idea that uh, public schools would be integrated class by class. One of the... Uh, one of the chapters in my book deals, in other words, you would do uh, first grade and then the second grade and then the third grade. So, you know, in 1958, you were only, you would, you'd integrated the third or fourth grade. So I think that's part of the reason. Um, one of the chapters in my book is, uh, is kind of built around uh, Bill Jews, the former head of uh, Blue Cross in Maryland who grew up in Cambridge. And um, that's the way it was done there. He was a senior in 1969, in the last year of the integration process, uh, and, and uh, went to high school his last two years, I think, in the white school. But I know another story about, and you probably know this too, about that suit, that equal pay suit. The NAACP brought that suit, and they, and they won. But in the beginning, they had a lot of trouble finding a plaintiff because people who, were, who had succeeded well enough to get employed in a school system were not real interested in making a lot of noise. So they couldn't find somebody for a while. And then they found a man in Frederick, who agreed to do this. Well, shortly after this, this fellow decided that he was going to be the plaintiff, the county or the city fathers of Frederick decided that this man would make a wonderful school principal. <laughs> so they promoted him. And he called up Marshall and said, look, they want me to be the principal of this school. What do you think I should do? And Marshall said, I think you should be the principal of the school. We'll find somebody else. And that's when they found the people in Anne Arundel County. And you know, I think even after pay grades were equalized, there were other reasons were found to pay black teachers less than white teachers on the basis of uh, professional qualifications or something along those lines. But again, you know, it was, it, it, this progress was made almost like trench warfare, you know, step by step, inch by inch. You know, people stayed with it and uh, got it done. Yeah. Yes. yes. Um, did you get any insights from your research about how Jim Crow and racism affects, affected white Baltimoreans? Um, in terms of unearned privilege and um, Un unearned, unearned privilege. privilege, 
you know, experiences, how it affects their psyches or their beliefs or ideas, being on the side of Jim Crow where they got privileges that other people didn't get? I never heard anybody really talk about that, but, but you know, you, you occasionally ran into things that were illustrative of, of your point. And Frederick, again, one of my friends out there told me that when he was growing up, there was a black maid in, in, in his house, and, and he and his siblings would sit with her and have lunch, but his mother would never do that. She would never sit down and, 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 and have dinner or lunch or something with the black maid. On the other hand, he said, when she shopped, when she went to the market, and there was a line there, uh, the black shoppers that were there when she got there would, would step back as if to let her go to the front of the line. She always refused. She, was ne she would never allow that to happen. Uh, and, you know, there were witnesses of that kind, I'm sure. Um, Mrs. Jackson had um, uh, various white uh, uh, allies. One of them was the, I think she was the daughter of the uh, founder of, uh, of Gilman School. And she was a, she was a, uh, a famous happy socialist, and she, she ran for public office. And um, some famous person whose name, I'm sorry, I can't remember, came to Baltimore and um, there, was, there was an attempt to have a, an integrated dinner and hotels would not permit it, but she did. Uh, and she, you could imagine that somebody who was the head of, uh, uh, or the, the daughter of the head of the Gilman School might have been in sort of the higher echelons of the city. And, but it didn't matter to her. She did this. And, and uh, Eugene O'Dunn did it and, and, you know, took this case. I'm straying a little bit from your point because I don't have, you know, a real sort of psychological handle on it. But, but one other thing about it that really impressed me was when O'Dunn retired, there was a big dinner for him. All the judiciary came. Several former governors came. H.L. Mencken was there. And they published a uh, report on what was said as, by, in verbatim, I guess, by, I mean, it was like a roast. Uh, and they talked about O'Dunn was the scourge of boss politics and prostitution and run-down uh, asylums and things like that. I mean, he was a real reformer and, and an obdurate uh, sort of uh, Eugene O'Dunn, get-out-of-my-face kind of thing. Uh, but in this document that they prepared, hailing him for all the great work he had done, there's no mention of Donald Gaines Murray v. Pearson. Which, is, which was the case that integrated the, uh, the Maryland Law School. I mean, it's a case that, that some people at the law school today will tell you led or was one of the important things that led to Brown v. Board of Education because it was one of the first times that the charade of separate but equal was, was unmasked by O'Don. Uh, you know, there was no black law school. 
Maryland wanted to send people to graduate school or to law school out of state, and uh, the assembly created a fund to pay for this. Uh, Houston and, and Marshall pointed out that, gee, there was no money in that fund. No money had been appropriated to do this. But again, you know, it, it's been a... Uh, it's been an arduous battle to win. You know, when, 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 um, when Murray was admitted to the law school, you would think that barriers would have fallen in other professional schools. No. You had to make the case all over again for the nursing school and the, uh, the, uh, the campus at College Park wasn't open to whites until the early 1950s. Perrin Mitchell was the first full-time black student and he was in the graduate school. We finally got around to integrating the, the, law, the, uh, the, the uh, undergraduate school, I think in part because there were some really pretty good black basketball players. So, you know, by, by whatever means you need to do it, you know, you, you try to get it done. Yes, uh, you mentioned Judge Howard in your book and the study he did on sentencing right. between blacks and white, that disparity. Uh, have you come across any other judges who speak up on, on that subject? I mean, on even that? today? No, I guess not. I mean, I, you know, I mean, our, our, our bench is fully integrated now, so I mean, I don't, and, and, such a big thing was made of that. I mean, people tried to use that as a way to to keep him off the federal bench uh, later. Um, it didn't work because people like Paul Sarbanes intervened on his behalf. Um, Larry Gibson campaigned for him. Gibson's in the book. I think Gibson's not back from from uh, Africa. He's he's over there fomenting revolution in Africa now. <laughs> But he, when I went to Judge Howard's funeral, very moving event actually, and um, Gibson, who has, who tells me, and I believe it's true, has never thrown away anything that he used in any of his political campaigns, had a tape that he made that that, that he used on election day, driving around the city, and the tape said, uh, "Don't vote for three, just vote for me." This was, this was an instruction to single shoot. You know, if you, you know what single shooting is? This is, this is a, an old Baltimore technique for electing uh, the person you want to elect from your district. You, didn't, you, you could vote for three, but you deny them, if you single shoot, you deny them your vote and just vote for the guy that you want to get there. And uh, it worked in Howard's case. And he got elected to the circuit court, and then later he, he, he went on to the federal bench. But um, he was another great man. You know, he did it. That was a daring study that he did. You know, it, it showed discrimination in several different ways in terms of sentences meted out to white defendants or in cases where the victim was black and the, the uh, defendant was white. You know, and looking at, at comparable cases to see if, if real justice was, was being administered. Thank you.
Again, on behalf of the library and John Hopkins University Press, I want to thank you all for coming tonight. I believe that books are still on sale over here by Ivy Bookshop, over here in this corner. I remind you to, if you have a moment, to fill out the surveys that you're on your chair and drop them on the information desk. And I believe Fraser will be around to sign books for a little while. Thank you again for coming.